0: has had an impact. This message of Jesus Christ crucified, dead, and raised again says something to these people. Great, uh, some of them are persuaded. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, those rabble rousers, is that what? You get that? They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. It just so happens the guy who shared here today was named Jason. That, was just, that wasn't part of the reasoning. Not the same guy, okay? And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. That is the story of how Paul met the Thessalonians. Uh, He's going to now write this letter to them, 1 Thessalonians, and the one that follows, 2 Thessalonians. And he's going to continue this relationship that he has with them. But you can tell it's not a a relationship uh, forged in the midst of ease, is it? It's a relationship that is forged in the midst of crisis, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of difficulty. We mentioned last week that it's often a difficulty and crisis and pain that God uses to get a hold of our life. It's not until maybe we have that drug overdose like Jason described that our life actually hits a rock bottom and we go, I need need something. My my shtick isn't working anymore. And I hope that many of you don't have to go that far. But maybe you're in a moment right now where you sense that the the circumstances of life is starting to unravel. And it's there that we can see in this passage that we're going to study today a great example of uh, how to be a healthy person, how to be a healthy church in the midst of crisis. Uh, What Paul's going to describe today is he's going to encourage these Thessalonians in verses 2 through 10. He's going to describe the change that's taken place in their life. How many of you, by a show of hands, like change? Okay. Some of you like change. How many of you would say you don't like change? Hey, more people don't like change. How many of you will never raise your hand no matter what? (laughs) Okay, some of you. So, so... When we think change, right, and you say, I like change, I don't like change, I mean, that could be very broad, right? Like um, John Cronwald, one of our pastors here, says, like, I love to just rearrange the furniture in our house. Like, I just, I like change that much. Maybe maybe that would unsettle you if you were his wife. Go, I don't know, we're not going to do that. Um, Maybe the kind of change that you kind of like or don't like would be in your workplace. You know, the organizational structure or new policies or new procedures or new systems. But what about personal change? Not the change of circumstances, but personal change. So my guess is that we're all here today because to some degree, we would like to change. We'd like to see God do something in our life to change us. And maybe you're in a place where, where you're in more of a place of discouragement and despair and hurt and anguish and saying, God, I, I know it, I've got to have something change." Maybe you're here today, and and you don't really know why you're here. You're just here. It's Sunday. I go to church. But but my guess is that the reason that you have this relationship with God, the reason that you want to be in an environment like this is because deep down, even if it's not obvious on the surface to you, you know you want to change. You know that God is desiring to, to change you to transform you, not just in the circumstances of life, maybe not even change the circumstances at all, but to change you and your heart in the midst of it. Perhaps you could be like those Thessalonians who in the midst of this great affliction can still see that Jesus is worth following even if people are going to come against you. So that's kind of the setting that we find ourselves in here in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, Paul begins this time of giving thanks for them and of encouraging them. That's actually the whole first half of the letter is really just Paul uh, giving thanks for these people in a variety of different ways. And so uh, if you look at verse 2, what you see is that Paul is giving thanks for them. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you. In our prayers. This is a habit of Paul's life, is to give thanks, is to pray to God, specifically thinking about the Thessalonians, praying for them. And what is it that he's praying for or praying in light of? What does he remember as he thinks about them? Uh, Verse three, he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul think of? He thinks of their love, their faith, their hope. What he thinks about is the change that he's seen in their life. When he met these people, they were not people who had faith and trust and confidence in God. They were not people who had love for God and love for one another that would transcend even the kind of suffering and persecution they'd experience. And they weren't people who hoped in a risen Messiah because they hadn't even heard of a risen Messiah. But Paul here is saying, I give thanks to God for you. I'm so thankful. Every time I pray, you're on my heart, you're on my mind, you're, you're on my lips. And what I'm remembering, what I'm thankful for, is the change I've seen in your life. Faith, love, and hope. These are the marks of a Christian, right? If you were to look at different kinds of people, you would find different marks, different qualifications that, that are there for every... Uh, kind of person so for instance an artist you're looking at an artist what are the marks of an artist creativity imagination fine motor skills the ability to kind of imagine something and then actually see it take shape on a page right those those of us that don't have that ability are like i don't know how you do that that's amazing that's the marks of an artist you you can't be an artist if you draw like a four-year-old maybe you can you die, and then, and then all your paintings make money. I don't know. But that's the marks of an artist. The marks of a Christian, the marks of a person whose life has been changed by Jesus, are faith, love, and hope. That's what Paul's remembering. That's what he's celebrating. That's the change that he's seen. And these are a steady kind of faith, love, and hope. He mentions the same idea in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. The greatest of these is love. In this very book, in chapter 5, verse 8, he'll say this. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. These are the marks of a Christian. This is the change that Paul is celebrating. So what I want to look at for the rest of this passage as he sort of unfolds why it is that he's so thankful, why it is that he can remember this this transformation in them so strongly. Uh, Here's what he's going to show us. He's going to show us the cause of the change, the fruit of the change, and the essence of the change. The cause, the fruit, the essence. Where it came from, what it resulted in, What it really is at its bottom level. That's what he's going to talk about. And remember, all of this is in the context of him just rejoicing and thanking God for this amazing change in their life. So the cause of change. Where did this change come from? Where did this change to becoming people of faith, love, and hope? Where did this begin? He says in verse 4, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. So the first place that this change comes from is that they've been loved by God. Do you see that, verse 4? Brothers loved by God. God has set his love upon them. And God's love is not like our love. God's love is unconditional. God's love is free. God's love is gracious. They've been loved by God. And so the love that they have for God, the faith and the trust that they have in God, the hope that God will never leave them or forsake them, the, the hope that if God is for them, no one can be against them, where does that come from? Where does that begin? It begins by being loved by God. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. So you're here today and you go, yeah, I love God. I do. You would know that the reason you love God is because he first loved you. You've experienced that even yourself. Where does this change come from? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So it's the love of God and the election or the choice of God that brings about this change. Now that word chosen there in verse 4 means to be selected or elected. Perhaps you've heard about the Christian doctrine of election or of predestination. Or it's the idea that God has chosen people from before time began to fulfill his purposes and to be rescued by his grace. That's what Paul is talking about here. Brothers loved by God, you've been chosen. This same word is used in Acts chapter 9, describing Paul himself. Here's what it says in Acts 9. This is where uh, God is talking to Ananias. Remember Ananias, we said last week, he was the guy who was like, God said, hey, you got to go over to this guy's house and help him out. And he's like, he's going to kill me, right? God, I don't think we have a good connection. You remember that whole thing? Here's the interaction. Here's what God says to him. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So God's saying, I, I've chosen him. I've appointed him. I've selected him. This wasn't just a random occurrence. And it for sure was not Paul riding down the road into Damascus hoping to run into Jesus. It was Paul actually on his way to kill people who love Jesus, being knocked off his horse, but because of this gracious and loving and sovereign choice of God, Paul's life has changed forever. This same word is used in Second Peter verse, or chapter 1 verse 10. Uh, Peter says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That's the same word as, as uh, chosen. For if you practice these qualities, he lists out some things in that chapter, you're, uh, you will never fall. So this is, a, this is the idea, and, and there's a whole lot here that I do not have time in this message to get into, um, but we rejoice as Redemption Church in this truth that God in his gracious, loving kindness has chosen people for salvation. That is good news. And The reason it's good news is because no one would choose him unless they were chosen and loved by him first. Because, as it says in Romans chapter 1 through 3 and a number of other places in the Bible, our hearts are bent continually on self and on sin. There's no one who does good. There's no one who merits favor before God. There's no one who is seeking after God, uh, who, who can cleanse themselves from sin. It can't be done. And so we rejoice in this truth of God's gracious, electing power. It is not here the idea that God looked down the quarters of time and saw the people who would do good or who would be good or who would choose him, and then he kind of said, No, I choose you first. That's not what happened. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, especially, you'll see that before the foundations of the earth, God did this. And that it, this choice was made by God. Not because of people's goodness, but in spite of their wickedness. So all of this is God's grace and God's kindness. And you know, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, that the reason you pray that other people would come to faith is because you know that God is the one that has to show his love to them first. Here's how else I know you know this. is because you thank God for your salvation, if you have it. Why would you do that? It's because you inherently know that this was a gift, as it says in Ephesians 2, that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not a result of works or else we'd boast. So this is God's grace. This is God's kindness. And yet this is a hard truth to understand. And some of you here today, I'm sure, just even in in the mentioning of this, are going, yeah, I've always been confused about that, or I wasn't confused about that, but now I'm totally confused about that. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh, Right, I mean, so you may have questions about this, you may want to wrestle with this. We'd love for this to be the beginning of a dialogue uh, to help you kind of see some of what the Bible explains about this. Um, This isn't an ending point, hopefully it's a starting point if you have some questions about this. So speak with your community group uh, leader or with one of the pastors or elders. We'll have some folks uh, down here uh, after the service available to pray with you and talk with you. If you have questions about this or anything else, uh, please, please direct that. We want to begin that dialogue there's a lot of mystery here. There's a lot that we can't understand. One thing that we for sure can't understand is why would God choose some people to set his love upon? On on what basis does he do that? Well, the scripture says that he does it on the basis of his own good pleasure, which means you don't know. (laughs) You can't understand it. But we get a little bit of an insight into how this works uh, when God explains how he chose the nation of Israel to be his chosen people among all the nations. He explains this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And here's uh, what he says. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So you get this? You got all the peoples, all the nations What's the one nation that God has set his love upon and chosen to communicate to and through? Israel. Why? Verse seven it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God says, I've loved you. I've chosen you. I've, I've, I've selected you to be my treasured possession. And I didn't do that because you were great or because you were many or because you were such a big deal. I loved you because I love you. Okay, God, well, why did you love? Well, because I love you. All right, we've talk, I've used this illustration before. For those of you that are married or you're in a serious relationship, uh, gentlemen, when, you're, when your bride comes to you, when your wife comes to you and says, honey, why do you love me? There is only one right answer. Do we know what that answer is? <laughs> it's like, I don't want to shame. I don't want to shout it out now. Here's the answer. Honey, why do you love me? Because I love you. That's the only right answer. Why is that? It's because anything else is a condition that she's gonna have to continually meet in order to merit your love. And as a result, her identity is going to become whatever it is that you love her based on. Okay, so for example, honey, why do you love me? Because you're hot. (laughs) Wrong answer. Right, And you may think that that's great, and that's affirming, and that's encouraging. But you know what she's thinking? What about someday when I'm not? Or, honey, why do you love me? Man, you're smart, and your mind is so sharp. You know what she begins to think? Hope I never get Alzheimer's. Right? Because that reason that you give becomes the identity that she begins to try to live in. So the answer is, I love you because I love you. And why, do, why is that the right answer? Because that's God's answer. So there's a lot of mystery here. But the, the reason that anyone would have faith and love and hope in this great new God that they had never experienced before is because of God's love given to them, unmerited by them, given graciously. That's the cause of of the change. Now, what does God also use in that to bring about this this deal? So it's not just you sort of experience this election in some sort of I mean, very few people have had this where like I just had a dream and I just knew that God had saved me and I did right it doesn't happen that way. God uses something to communicate his love to you. God uses something to communicate his grace to you. And in this case, what he used is found in verse 5. He said, "We know you've been loved and chosen" Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. What Paul is saying here is he's saying the message that you received came in word. So it was the words we said in power. He doesn't really explain exactly what that means could be signs, could be wonders, could just be an overwhelming sense that they were right and that this message was true. He doesn't say, but word, power, in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the scripture says, is the one who gives people ears to hear the message of truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts people of sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings all that Jesus did to mind. So this message came in word and in power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's full confidence. This is confidence on behalf of the messenger. So God used the means of Paul and Silas and Timothy. God used them and their ministry to help help the Thessalonians see that they were loved. So the cause of the change is God's love and God's choice through the means of God's people filled with the Spirit preaching a message. That's what it is. That's the cause. Well, what's the fruit? What happened? So they were chosen. Uh, they heard this message. What was the fruit of the change? What did this change result in? We've already seen it a bit in verse 3 in faith and hope and love. But what else does Paul describe? Well, look at verse 6. Looked at the cause of the change. Here's the fruit of the change. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They became imitators. Uh, imitation is, uh, what do they say? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. You want to demonstrate that you approve of somebody, you like somebody, you, you have affection for somebody. One of the things you might do is imitate them. Right? So I've got two daughters. Got Caitlin, who's three. Abby, who's five. It's not uncommon for Caitlin to imitate Abby because even though they're very different very different personality uh, there's things about Abby that Caitlin admires and so it's very natural for her to imitate her to do what she wants to do to go along with the things that she wants it's the same thing if we love and admire Jesus we would imitate him We would imitate. We would walk in his steps. And how do they imitate Jesus? Well, he says, verse 6, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the one whose life was filled with affliction, wasn't it? Filled with people misunderstanding him. Filled with friends turning their back on him. Filled with even family members saying, This guy's nuts. And yet, Jesus was faithful with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I love, he says, our message came in word and with the Holy Spirit. And how do they respond? They receive the word despite all the affliction, despite people coming and saying, hey, Jason and everyone in his house, we're going to haul you off. Despite that affliction, there's joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you have joy? Has, has the truth of what Jesus has done for you, his affliction, has it started to bear the fruit of joy in your life? We should be a joyful people. And I'm convicted just personally. One of the, a couple of the things that uh, the, the, the Lord is just trying to, I think, um, change in me is, uh, one, is he's revealed to me a number of ways which I'm not very thankful, not very grateful whether for him or for other people or for other things that people do for me or for our ministry, and, and the Lord's working on me in that. And I'm seeing that, that that needs to change. Another thing is just generosity. I just want to be more open-handed. I, want to be, um, I just more and more want to see that my life's not my own, my stuff's not my own. I want to be open-handed. Well, where does that come from? I think it comes partly from the joy of knowing God. The joy that if he's for me, who can be against me? And so therefore, I'm happy to give myself away. I'm thankful for all that he's doing in and through me. There's the joy of the Holy Spirit that should come as a result of his work. So that was one fruit, was that they became imitators of the Lord. What else? Well, verse 7 says, they also became examples of the Lord. Verse 7, for not, uh, or, so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia... And in Achaia, this word example means in the Greek a mold uh, or uh, like a a mold that can reproduce patterns, right? So some of you are about to do this with Christmas cookies, right? And you get out the different mold and you can reproduce the same looking cookie across the deal. And he's saying you've become become a, a pattern, you've been shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. And when people see you, they see not just you, they see him. You have his shape, you have his stamp, you have his mark. You're an imitator of him, you're an example of him. Of him, and you're such a strong example that this this message and this this word has gone forth from you. That's what it says in verse eight. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Part of to understand this would be to say, Thessalonica was on one of the major trade routes that went through what is modern day Greece. So they were a city, a prominent city, about 100,000 people, uh, right there, kind of right along the main freeway, so to speak. That would be kind of the idea. And as people interact with them in business and in life, they begin to hear about what God's doing. Now, now this is amazing, right? Because you're talking about a city of 100,000 people. How many people are probably part of this church that Paul's writing to? A few dozen, maybe? I mean, you don't get the sense from, from what we read in Acts 17 that this is like, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands, I mean, of people. And yet, this, this change has been so profound. This new trust they have in God, this new love they have for one another, this new hope that despite whatever comes against them, God is for them. That made an impact, right? And they didn't have, you know, websites and billboards and twitter and facebook to like let's let me share with you all that's going on and it's echoing out right this is just through the interactions that these people had with a small group of people paul is in another part of the world and he's hearing about it it's amazing this word has sounded forth it says in verse 8 that that word means a loud resounding noise like the sound of the ocean or a trumpet blast. It's related to the Greek word from where we get the idea of an echo. This word of the Lord has echoed all over the place because of the change that's happened in them. That's one of the fruits of this. They became imitators of the Lord. They became examples of the Lord. And this word is echoing out that there is life in Christ. This change was caused by God's love for them through the means of these faithful messengers. And it resulted in them being imitators and examples of Jesus. But what is this change, really? What are we talking about? What's the essence of this change that he's talking about? What's the essence of what people have heard as this word has echoed out? Well, we see the essence of the change in verses uh, 9 and 10. Verse 9, it says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What was it that echoed across the world? Was it that the Thessalonians were nice people, were good people, were moral people? It doesn't say that. I'm sure that was part of it. What echoed was this word of the Lord, this truth that what happened was, verse 9, they turned to God from idols. Before, they had hoped in, they had trusted in, they had loved these idols, these false gods that could never save. And they turned from those to God. It says to serve the living and true God. And then it actually mentions in verse 10 that Jesus Christ is God's son raised from the dead. What is that saying? Jesus is the living God. And they're now serving this living and true God, Jesus, and they're waiting for him to return. It says in verse 10 that Jesus is this one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their whole life has been reoriented, reshaped, turned around. This is a picture of true repentance. Repentance is a biblical word that means to turn around or to have a change of mind. And so they had been pursuing idols, false gods that could never save. They repent, they turn around, and they begin to serve the true and the living God. Well, now, we don't have idols in the same way that they did. Um, I mean, my guess is most of you don't have statues in your house you sort of worship and bow down before. But there's things that you trust in. There's things that you hope will bring meaning to your life and joy to your life and security to your life. There's these functional gods that vie for, they compete for affection in our hearts. And we've got to see That they're dead and false. right? That's the implication of verse 9. Look at verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So if God is the living and true God, then everything else we would trust in is dead and false. Let's look at a picture of this. I think it's helpful to kind of see a picture of, of the futility of the other things that we might trust in. And uh, I don't know about you, I love love just sarcastic stuff. I mean, that's kind of one of my gifts for good or bad is sarcasm. And I love these moments in the scripture when you sort of see some of God like, just being like, seriously? Like, seriously, you're going to try to do this without me? Let me just show you. Let me show you the futility of your idolatry. And so uh, 1 Samuel 5 is a place for me, and we'll just put this on the screen. You can follow along with this. Uh, What's happened here is uh, the Israelites have been fighting against the Philistines. That was one of their main enemies. And in one of these battles, they lose, and part of what they lost in the battle was the Ark of God. So anyone seen uh, Indiana Jones? Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That's what they're after. They're after the Ark. The Ark was this uh, kind of cabinet and in it was the law, and the idea was that the presence of God dwelled in this ark. It wasn't that the ark was to represent God, but that God himself dwelt in the ark. There was a gal after the first service who, who was raised Jewish, and she said, even now when you go to synagogue, um, there's, a, there's a thing up at the front, the ark, and they keep the Torah in there. And uh, when that thing's open, like no one can leave to go to the bathroom. Like no one, like this is serious. And so the Israelites have lost the Ark. That's what it says, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon to set it up beside Dagon. So Dagon is this idol, this god that they're worshiping. Apparently has some kind of temple or the house of Dagon, whatever that is. Verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. It's curious, isn't it? Was anyone in here? Did the janitors come last night? Did they knock this What happened? So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Verse four. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Bad day for Dagon. Bad week. Right? He's not doing good, right? I mean, this ark comes in, and all of a sudden he's got a head, no head and no hands. What is God communicating? This is not a true and living God. This is a false... God. And then it says, verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. There's something that you could just miss here if you don't think about verse 5. They're still serving him. You go, okay, uh, guys. Okay, first day, yeah, he just fell down. Maybe the janitor did it. Second day, I mean, he lost his head in his hands, and he was right before the ark of the Lord. Like, is it time to go... This Dagon thing's over, right? And yet, that's the nature of even the idols of our life, right? None of you, I'm I'm sure, have a Dagon statue in your house, right? But all of us have something, this functional God, that is competing for our affection. Security, maybe financially, or maybe in a particular relationship or a particular person. Maybe it's this idol of comfort that at all costs I must be comfortable and anything that's a threat to that I get furious maybe it's a reputation how you're viewed or how you're perceived by people and these idols even though we see at moments that they're worthless and that they can't deliver us right I mean when you're standing before God your reputation with people will not help you, right? You're gonna stand before God and go, but God, people liked me. They thought I was really fashionable and I knew all the latest trends. No. Right? When you stand before God, the financial security that you just left behind on earth will not help you. Right? And even though we know they're futile and even though these other things we trust in we we know that they can't save us we we still go back to them we get out our super glue we glue on the head and the hands and we just keep doing it I just won't step over that place to honor him it's foolish and then look at what else happens here verse 6 the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors both Ashdod and its territory so they start to experience the wrath of God they're not supposed to have the ark here Verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us. <laughs> yeah, good call. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Maybe the Gathites will like it. So they brought around the ark of God. The ark of the God of Israel there. But after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a, great, very, a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. What do you think those people were thinking? Please, no! But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought around to us the ark of God, the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. That's sort of a funny story and can be a bit sarcastic, but it's also serious. God means business. When God says, I'm dwelling in this ark, this is to be holy. No one's to touch this. And a person reaches out and touches it, he's struck dead. When this ark, this cabinet, right? I mean, it's it's in a place where it's not supposed to be. Everyone starts getting tumors and dying. It's because God takes himself very seriously. And so should we. Right, this is why we need Jesus. It says in verse 10, Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And if we are found in that day of judgment, depending on what people thought of us or how much money we had, rather than on Jesus, we will find that we will taste eternal death from God. We would cry out to God hoping that we would only get tumors. You know, well, God, that doesn't seem very nice of God. I don't like that. Well, then make up your own God. and Watch him fall face in the dirt. He's not true. He's not living. And yet we do that. So let us see that God is true and he's living and he's given us his son. He's risen him from the dead. He, before that, he let him die on a cross so that he would suffer the wrath that we deserve. And that now he's alive so that we could serve him and hope in him and trust him. This is gracious of God. This is kind of God to give us this essence of change that we could turn to him from idols. Have you done that? Some of you are here today and, and you've never placed your trust in Jesus, you've never turned from the idols. To God. You've never acknowledged that Jesus Christ is your only hope when you stand before him. Trust him today. Trust him now. I don't need to put words in your mouth. If you sense that God is drawing you and that God is working in your life, pray to him right now on your own and cry out to him and say, God, save me. And if you're here today and, and you're a Christian, you know, just like I do, that these idols Keep kind of ensnaring us. And even though we would say, no, Jesus is my God, the functional God of our hearts often are these same things. Just want to be light. Just want life to go well. Just want things to be easy. I just want to make sure we have enough. Just want my kids to be happy. Some of those are not even bad things. Many of those are good things. But when they become ultimate things... They ruin us. Turn from those. Repent afresh to the true and living God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the grace that you give us in Jesus. We thank you that you gave us your own son. That even though it would be fully just and fully right for you to let us suffer the punishment of our own sin. To bear the wrath of of sin that we deserve, God, that you would place it on your son Jesus in our place and that you would give us his perfect record of righteousness and goodness that you would see us in that new way, God. That is amazing grace. God, we're reminded right now just of how much we need you. God, each of us, we, we trust in things that cannot deliver and that won't deliver when we stand before you. God, give us the grace to turn from them now and to see Jesus as our treasure. We pray for that in his name.